they want to see a path to success for that. So they want to know how are they going to grow? Where are they going to go? And I don't think that's a terrible thing. I think it actually can really help a company inform decision-making and how they, they want to see their company expand and utilize different skill sets. Welcome to Inside Reproductive Health, the shop talk of the fertility field. Here you'll hear authentic and unscripted conversations about practice management, patient relations, and business development from the most forward-thinking experts in our field. Now, here's the founder of Fertility Bridge and the host of Inside Reproductive Health, Griffin Jones. One of my closest friends in our field, Hannah Johnson, is the director of operations for Vios Fertility Institute, which is in Chicago, Milwaukee, St. Louis. Hannah has been in all areas of practice management from her early days in the andrology lab to clinical research to international marketing. She is extremely passionate about the patient experience making sure that every patient leaves happy, receives individualized care. She enjoys baby wearing, practicing yoga, and traveling the world to exotic places like islands around Iceland that I've never heard of with her husband and her daughter. And you can follow all of that on her Instagram at Habajo, Hannah Beth Johnson. Welcome to Inside Reproductive Health. Thank you, Griffin. Our millennials ruining the field of fertility. So let's start with that super loaded question and unpack it from there. Yeah, my answer is absolutely not. I think that millennials are making the field of infertility really exciting, both on the patient side and on the employee side. So I would completely and entirely wholeheartedly say no. I think that they are doing the opposite. In what ways are they making it better? I think what's amazing about millennials is their interest in learning new things. And I think that's got pros and it's got cons, but they're actively engaged. I'm going to talk about patients first. They're really engaged in the process of being an infertility patient. So they're willing to do the work. They're willing to put in the effort to learn what they need to learn about treatment and the process that they're going to go through. They need the information delivered to them differently than we've been used to. But I think that they're a far more engaged patient population than any that I've ever worked with. So I like that about them. And I think the millennial employees, what's really amazing about them is that they can bring... Before we jump on to employees, what do you mean by they're willing to do more work? Like what kind of work? Yeah. So I think what I've noticed with the millennial patients is when we ask them to do things like complete their education modules, we use a program called Engaged MD. And it's online. They can do it at home. They can do it on their phone or iPad, but they are willing to get it done. They get their consent signed because we provide it to them as a DocuSign. They're willing to get their new patient paperwork completed because we've provided to them in a platform that's easy for them to access on the go. And I think that we're finding that if we present it to them in a way that is easily accessible, they are very willing to jump right in. And the research is pretty clear that patients who are willing to get that stuff done are the patients that have better patient outcomes reported, better patient experience. They're less likely to use the on-call after hours phone. They're they're more likely to have a, a positive relationship with staff. So all around, it's it's a positive when we're able to give them the tools to complete their side of care because they need to be actively involved. Fertility is no longer something where we're doing everything to them. They are partners in this process. That I can understand. So do you really feel like they're just more willing to, or they're just like more prepared? The <laughs> millennial patient? I think they have, they come to us certainly with a greater degree of investigation than perhaps patients like 10 years ago, five, 10 years ago, 
one of the reasons is they just have more access to information. So that's not really a knock on patients 10 years ago. It's just there's more information on the internet. There's support groups. People are far more open and talking about their treatment. So I feel like they're feel, hearing it in their friend circles. They're seeing it online. So that's giving them opportunities to explore their options and learn more before they even walk in our doors. So that gives them a different foundation and baseline to work with. Sometimes it's challenging because the information isn't always correct or relevant to them, but it does help us kind of form what our relationship is going to be with them and how we're going to communicate with them because we can see what they're actively involved by no means does any one person completely represent their generation or is defined by their generation any more than one person is completely defined by their nationality or their culture but do you notice in terms of broad general patterns differences in behavior in say many 44 year old patients versus a typical 29 year old patient i think there's a significant difference we especially in terms of how much we need to handhold the process. I think that we see all of our patients who come to Vios anyway, that they are pretty engaged from the process in the process very early on. It's just how difficult is it to execute and what kind of burden does it add to their treatment? So I think that using some of the technology and the patient portal and things that are a little less intuitive for our patients who are in the 40 to 45 age range. It's not that they can't or don't. It's just a little bit more cumbersome for them. And it might add a little bit of an additional burden and stress to the process for them, as opposed to your 27, 28, 29 year old patient. Okay. So millennial patients doing their homework. What about millennial employees? Millennial employees, they're my, they're my like, passion project. I love them. And that I is something them. that not a lot of, I know it's, it's, I not, can tell um, you that even, be, even like coming from the tech space and the marketing space, which is, you know, in air quotes, so like millennial and, and hip and cool in, in those respects, when you talk to even like people that are just a few years older, they often say, I hate managing millennials. I can't stand it. So you enjoy it. I do. I think we've done a really phenomenal job at our clinic of hiring really passionate young people who want to be involved in growing something and building something. And so perhaps that's a little bit why my experience is different is because Vios is only three years old and we still have a little bit of that startup vibe and we've grown really quickly. And in order to grow quickly, we've had to get team members on board that are really passionate about what we're doing. So what I love about millennial employees that I work with and I manage is that almost all of them have some sort of very interesting, whether it's a side hustle that they do or a passion project on the side. We've got people who volunteer really heavily. We have yoga instructors. We have women who sell, you know, products on the side, people who we have, one of our employees is a doula. So we have this really interesting, diverse set of employees who have skills that they utilize outside of the workplace that what we have found to be most successful is to try to bring those skills back into BIOS. So I think what happens is a lot of employers see these side projects, side hustles as a burden to their ability to have a, an engaged employee because they're thinking, well, they're just, they're just thinking about whatever that other thing is. That's their end game. That's their end goal. But what I found is I don't think that's actually true. I think that 
millennials just tend to have a variety of passions and they want to fit them into their life however they can. So what we're trying to do is take those passions and see, is there a way for them to apply that within the clinic? So are they really passionate about, about yoga? So can they help us with a wellness initiative or a wellness program in the clinic? Are they selling you know, makeup or skincare products on the side? Why don't we take that skill and have them help us sell our bios vitamins in-house? There's just, there's a lot of wonderful additional skill that might not be directly applicable to their role that shouldn't be ignored because in order to grow a great clinic and to adapt to the new patient population and just adapt to society, you need to draw on those skills and use them whenever possible. I think as, as someone who is a millennial, but also as someone who employs millennials, you can get so much out of them. You can get so much out of them. And what I'm hearing evidenced in how you're relaying these thoughts is you just know how to manage them. And I think that, that there's just, in the, in the workforce in general, not just in our field, there has been a non-understanding of how to manage millennials. They are managed differently, I imagine. I have some Gen X team members and they're probably they're less hands-on. So my breadth of it, you know, my scope of generations that I've managed isn't so wide. Do you notice a difference in management style between the generations yourself? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I love watching our organization grow and our culture change over time as we add new team members. And we have lots of different generations represented in our clinic, but they definitely have different expectations of what they want their day to look like and how they want to be utilized. And I think that's where, you know, we're constantly trying to refine that because some of our Gen Xers or maybe even those a little older than Gen X, they're really keen on structure and following the the guidelines of their job description. And they want to know exactly how their day is going to flow and they want to meet those expectations for the day. They want to exceed those expectations, but they really want them to be outlined clearly. I think the millennial population, what works really well for us in terms of being a, a startup is that they can kind of help support us in the chaos of a startup and sort of the, the dynamic nature and the ever-changing nature of a startup. So we can draw on their skills to say, hey, I need this project. We got to get it done in two days. Can you jump in and do it? And they'll they'll jump in and do it. It's a little harder for our older generation employees to jump right in, though that mentality and that spirit is infectious. So I have seen that kind of transfer over into all of our employees, which I think is awesome. Why do you think it is that it, it's a little bit harder for the team members that are just a little bit older to jump in as quickly? I think because it it oftentimes falls out of the scope of, of that structure of their day. So if they're used to, this is my checklist, these are the things that I am responsible for every day. When you pop in and say, hey, I need you to do this, it takes a little bit to figure out how does it fit within the structure of that day that they already had planned. It's it's a little harder for them to pull out of that and jump into a project and then go back into their day. An episode on managing millennials could be an episode in and of itself. <laughs> yeah. I, I want to talk a little bit about some of the ways that millennials are whack and how you have to <laughs> either account for it or manage it because... I just look at every single generation the same way I would with any culture, it like like a nationality, meaning there is a dominant culture pattern that might be common, but that does not mean that every single person in that group 
mirrors every single characteristic of that dominant culture. Maybe they mirror some, maybe they mirror very few. And that's true for every generation. There are also aspects that are both positive and what I perceive to be negative. And like any group were to say to me, you know, all Canadians are great or all Canadians are bad. I would say you probably don't know enough. <laughs> you probably have not really had some meaningful interactions with enough of any certain subgroup. If you so quickly think that in what ways, and I've got a couple, but in what ways do you think millennials are whack or ways or things that you need to watch out for in either managing them or accounting for them on the patient side? Yeah. I don't know if I'd say that they're whack. Maybe they're just challenges or things to be mindful of. If we're talking about dominant culture as though it were, with my caveat that not everyone exhibits every aspect or even many characteristics of a dominant culture. But I think think some are what I would call really positive and others that I would definitely call negative. But you don't have to use the word whack. You, I'll use that. I'll, I'll say you challenges. Can, you can, you can blame me. <laughs> well, I think, I mean, I think many of my millennial employees will probably listen to this episode. So uh, I'm going to be nice. So I think one of the challenges is, and, and I'm going to say more general outside of what I'm familiar with in, in our direct work environment, because I do believe we're, we've, done a really good job and we've been very lucky with the millennials that we've hired. But what I have noticed when I talk to my other friends in the field um, and just other friends who are managing millennials and working with them in general, there is certainly a sense of, I, I think the entitlement word gets thrown around a lot and I don't think that's exactly what it is, but Millennials do really believe in in who they are and what they're doing, and they want to see a path to success for that. So they want to know how are they going to grow? Where are they going to go? And I don't think that's a terrible thing. I think it actually can really help a company inform decision-making and how they, they want to see their company expand and utilize different skill sets. But I know it can be challenging to manage because in the moment, you just don't always have time to work on every individual person's grand idea. And sometimes you don't have the budget for it. Sometimes you don't have the time for it, but you have to figure out a way to take that, that excitement and passion and that, that drive to grow their career and help them see a path. And I think what we've done is we've recognized that that doesn't, it's not always going to happen with bios. And I think when you can let go of that and you can say, it's okay that some of these people are going to grow away from your company and move elsewhere, that kind of releases this, this burden and stress of feeling like you have to make sure that everybody fits in perfectly. So we have a lot of our employees that are in school part-time and they may, when they finish school, want to stay with us and be with us full-time. And that would be great. And we will welcome them and support them and, and want to find a place for them to grow. But they also may not. And that's okay. But instead of firing them because they're in school and we don't want to accommodate a part-time work schedule, we are happy to keep them on because they're skilled and they're knowledgeable and they're passionate about what we do. So I think there's a way to kind of balance that. I think the fact that they have so many passions and interests can be challenging because it's, it is sometimes distracting. So you have to find a way to focus and, you know, whether it's you focus the hour, the day, the week, the month, but, and, and I have this problem all the time myself because there's so many you are you are a straight up multitasker like anytime you talk to you when i'm in your office you've got the computer over here you got like four windows you're on your phone 
you're talking to me you got like a zoom win for other people and you're texting somebody you, you're a, <laughs> you're a straight up multitasker yeah 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 what is it the uh jack of all trades master of none but um i think you have to find a way to take those those varied interests and passions and just and streamline them and give them focus. So you can appreciate that somebody has these different interests, but you can't necessarily provide an environment for them to execute on all of them. And that's okay. You can accept that that's not necessarily feasible. If somebody's really into fitness and you're running a financial firm, it just may not fit. But maybe you can offer them a space to do a workout class for your staff once a month. I mean, there's just some creativity and flexibility that you need to allow yourself in order to keep those employees engaged. Because if these are things that they're passionate about, you don't want to be dismissive of them. And if anything, and and as frequently as possible, you want to utilize those skills to your best interest because it's good for them. It keeps them engaged. And it's oftentimes something that can be positively used to impact either your corporate culture or your actual work that you're doing. I think one of the biggest challenges, one of the one of the things that that I'll just say that's whack about our generation, that includes myself personally, is that I got out of college and I just thought that I was going to make six like I, and nobody said that to me. Nobody like said like this comes up from the the narrative that we have of, you know, life is awesome. I guess maybe watching too many teen movies where the the kid graduates from college and then he just goes into corporate America and, and they just value him for his ideas or, or something. And, you know, so I like, I just envision like within a couple of years, I'm going to be making six figures for, I, I don't know what I'm going to be doing to earn that or have that corporate value, but somehow it's just going to, I did not ever think, I did not ever think what the letters B through Y were. I could only see A and Z. And I think one really big thing that uh, the practices need to do, employers need to do, parents as a society is to reset expectations and help reset expectations. Because a lot of the times, like I said, they're not necessarily rooted in this cemented thing of, you know, someone taught me this or explicitly said, I just came to the expectation, blow it down. You mentioned showing a career path, whether it's career or them as a patient or any other type of interaction with millennial. I think that the resetting of expectations is critical, especially because when you're operating a fertility clinic, you cannot get back to everyone about every single thing in 10 seconds. And that is the expectation that so many millennial patients have. We manage different clinics, social media sometimes, and we, we're getting messages on Facebook messages. Hey, I just called. I'm Facebook messaging you now. Then we get a message on Instagram say, I just left you guys a Facebook message. So how do you reset expectations for both employees and patients? I think I'm going to touch on the patients first because I think it's the one that is the most challenging right now. And it's going to continue to be a huge challenge for clinics um, and healthcare providers in general, but fertility especially because the relationship is so intimate. It's so intense for sort of shorter periods of time. So we're not seeing people annually. We're seeing them weekly or monthly or daily at times. And we develop these really strong relationships with them. And I think a lot of clinics are trying to adapt. They've got patient portals. There's really easy ways for patients to access us. But what's easy for patients to forget is that, you know, the last time they were in for a patient 
consult, you know, with their physician in person, you know, the nurses are all working and they're going into rooms and they're talking to patients afterwards. They're not sitting at their computer waiting for your message. And I think what happens too, is that we don't take enough time in terms of setting expectations is helping patients understand what's urgent and not urgent. So everyone thinks that, you know, you can put a disclaimer that says non-urgent messages will be answered within a day and urgent messages will be answered today. But every patient, their interpretation of urgency is different. So and what kind of things you should call the office for, what kind of things you should call the on-call line for. You can just send a message for and wait a minute. We all want that instant gratification. And that has been supported through so much tech and apps and our phones and social media. But we also have real physical people doing the work that's trying to provide really good care in person to the people that are in the clinic. And then they have to come back to their online presence and their digital interactions with patients in between. And so I think it's just helping patients understand that and visualize it and also presenting this information more than once. So if you tell a patient at their new patient appointment, let me do some communication expectation setting with you. And this is blah, 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 blah. You can't expect them to necessarily remember all of that come two months later when they're getting ready to start their IVF cycle. So I think reintroducing that idea, a lot of clinics have structured scheduling, so they won't do certain procedures at certain times of the day. Like let's say, for example, an OB ultrasound. A lot of clinics won't do an OB ultrasound during morning monitoring hours in like the 7 to 10 a.m. range. And it's so interesting to see a patient who's just transitioned from being a fertility patient. Now they're pregnant and now they're coming in for OB visits. How quickly they forget what it was like to really need those time slots for their monitoring because they were, you know, going to work late every day. And so really just helping them understand, oh, remember we just, we talked about this and we don't do OB ultrasounds until after XYZ time uh, to allow as many time slots for our, our patients who are in treatment. And it's okay to gently remind people that they were just there and you don't have to pretend like this person lives in a bubble by themselves. They, every patient who walks in our doors, they are special and they are unique and we want to give them personalized care, but they're doing it within the context of a larger clinic and larger patient population. So you have to marry those two together. And I think people have been worried about offending patients by saying, you know, there's other patients that we have to worry about. You can do that in a sensitive way that helps them remind, reminds them that they're part of a community and that in order for this to work and function correctly, we all have to do our part and respect the fact that things change over time. I go on any of these themes in and of itself, but everything that we've just talked about is mostly a setup and a foundation for what I really want to talk about, which is our generational place in our field, like what our place is and how millennials and other generations are coming of age and our relationship with each other as generations. And one of the reasons I, maybe I can sum up where I want to go with this thought in this concern that I have. One of the reasons why I wanted to call the episode, our millennials ruining the fertility is because I think that it's the, probably the only way that I could spin this in a way that a lot of the baby boomer physicians and practice managers would actually listen to it because <laughs> yeah yeah I, what i and and so this so here's the here's the i think you can sum up the divide in this observation millennials are going to listen to this episode and nod enthusiastically and be like yes and just feel like that and really connect with it and i i think that the 
baby boomer physicians and practice managers, many of them, not all, are not going to care. Yeah, it's going to be like, oh, there's Griffin and Hannah again. Those right, there's Griffin and Hannah. Talking about, right. talking about millennials. Yeah, I think, I think you're right, actually. And I think it's hard. It's a hard shift. And every generation struggles with this. So as they go from being entry level into management, into directing over you know, 20, 30 years, you, every style kind of moves its way into the next sort of echelon of, of the structure of a company and an organization. And what we have to be really conscientious about is thinking, how do we, how do we develop that over time? Because what I notice is that some clinics are so stereotypical about millennials that they, they feel like they have to work really hard to fit the millennial within the structure of, let's say, a baby boomer or a Gen X. And like I said earlier on, in doing so, you're preventing the opportunity to take some of their additional skills to help your clinic become better. Because no matter whether or not we like it, this is the way it's going to be. Patients are not going to take paper from you. They're not going to want paper charts. They are going to want to communicate with us 24-7. It's kind of how we figure out how to deal with that that will drive whether or not clinics are successful. And I truly believe there's going to be tons of mergers and acquisitions in the fertility space in the next 10 years because if you haven't been thinking about this, you're already kind of screwed. That's, because- this is no small part of why the M&A is so crazy in our field right now because the retiring doctors do not have a successor. And the reason why they don't have a successor is because they're not set up for the the things that we talked about, whether it's marketing, whether it's practice culture. And, and there's a big frustration on, on both sides of, uh, but there's, there's a real frustration when I talk to physicians who want to retire within the next, and why these people coming out of fellowship, they don't chops, they don't want to start a practice. They don't want to take over. What they're really saying is they don't want to take over my practice. So I have to sell equity to one of the networks because that that's like, that's their option. And what I'm arguing is the reason why they don't want to take it over is because it's not set up for them at all. Correct. They have to redo everything in their way. And you are going to fight them tooth and nail for those five years before you retire. And it's going to cost the relationship and they're going to end up leaving anyway. And then you're going to end up having to sell anyway. Yep. Yep. I couldn't agree more. And I think that's, that's what the retiring physicians need to, they need to ask themselves the question of, do they want to, do they want to leave a successful practice or do they want to leave a practice that's been done the way that they've always done it? That's really the question they have to ask themselves, because if you are a clinic that's a little behind on the tech side of things and the patient experience, you can still survive and thrive and you can still finish out your career and have a really valuable company that you will hopefully you know, be able to profit from. But you have to listen to these incoming physicians and you have to let them have a voice. They don't know a lot and they don't know the medicine as well as the older doctors. And they have to learn the nuances of the different protocols. That's all stuff that, that the older physicians really want, they need to take that on and they need to teach, but they also need to accept that the incoming physicians know way more about digital marketing and social media and all of that stuff and what patients are going to want and how they're going to want to communicate. So marry those things together, make this a mutually beneficial relationship, help. Like it's kind of let, like, let me help or what do they say? 
help me help you. Yeah. Help me help you do what you can do and what you're good at, but let them do what they're good at as well. And marry those things together to grow your practice in the right direction and help it change and modernize because otherwise it's not going to survive because Patients are finding their doctors on Instagram. They're finding their doctors in these Facebook support groups. And, you know, they care about SART data, but they've already learned that SART data is really complicated to interpret and that it's not always apples to apples. They're learning that clinics turn away patients. That means that their numbers look better. Like they're getting savvy to this. So the things that we used to think would drive most of our patients to come to us and and how our patients would research us are changing so rapidly. And what I hear from patients is they kind of expect us to all do well in getting them pregnant. That expectation is pretty solid. So they they don't really care. If you have really good numbers, that's great, but they, they expect you to do well at the pregnancy part. So what they care about is being treated well and being cared for and feeling like the staff knows them and loves them and, and cares about their journey. And if you're not focusing on that, you're going to fall flat on your face. And here's the rub about ageism because ageism is absolutely real. It's, it's every bit as real as sexism and racism and, and maybe even more so because we, we really don't talk, we talk about those other things. We don't talk about ageism a lot. And the rub about ageism is that it goes both ways. It goes both ways. Older people discriminate against younger people and younger people discriminate against older people, both unfairly. And a hundred percent. But the rub is if if you're in the older generation, you get to decide that first. And so, you know, when we get the, oh, there's Griffin and Hannah and there's our other friends who we really respect in our cohort. But guess what? We're not 21 anymore. We're in our mid thirties. Now you run one of the fastest growing practices in the country. I own a company and our other friends do the same. And now we're starting to make the decisions and we're starting to gain marking more of the talent pool. And for those people, you know, I, I hope that you and I are more reflective on this, but I do start to hear now from our cohort that as we're assuming power and influence, like, uh, you know, that that's the, that that's person or that practice or that group that's that's old. They don't get it. They're they're done. And and that's costing them opportunities. And it's, it's like it's the other it's the other shoe hitting the ground. And, you know, a part of like, you know, if, if for no other reason than self-interest, there's value in investing in the, the younger culture. I think you talking about ageism going both ways is really important because it's very easy for the younger population to discount where we've come from. And I think what is really important for us is to look back on the history of this field and learn from it and understand our history. And the thing, like the story that I always go to is sitting in this bar, and I think it was in Montreal with Dr. Beltzos, who is my medical director and CEO, and Dr. Bill Schoolcraft. And Dr. Schoolcraft is like a legend. You know, there are protocols named after him. He has incredible success rates and CCRM is a phenomenal network of clinics. And he's telling this story about the first time he grew embryos to blast and he got the media to grow them the extra couple of days from a friend in Australia. And it it came in this like real janky, like 
duct taped styrofoam cooler and he had no idea if it was going to work. And he was telling the story and all I could think was just, Oh God, I wish I was recording this moment right now because those stories are so important for us to hear and for us to remember. And this field is really, really dynamic. And so much has happened in the last 40 years since Louise Brown was born, the first IVF baby. And if we forget or we discount the previous 30 years, we're doing ourselves such a disservice because while the technology may, you know, have been rudimentary and and older and so much has happened in the last 10 years in the field in terms of growth and technology and the science, but that history is really important and we can learn from it and we can use it to inform our decisions about how we grow moving forward. So I think it's so important to not, you know, pull the eye roll and discount all of the work and all of the knowledge that the older people in our field have because what they know is vital for continued growth and the future of this field. And it's important to ask those questions and learn and build those relationships so that that information it doesn't isn't lost and that we can use it to our benefit. I think where the frustration comes and among people that don't think about this as reflectively as I do, I think this is what leads to ageism is from a frustration of, I want to help you. I want to help the, I want to help my clients. I want to help my prospective clients. I want to help the field. And, and sometimes I feel like, you know, you're just, you're hitting this wall resistance for God knows whatever reason, other than they, that some people just don't feel like dealing with it. And to the point that you mentioned whether we like it or not is irrelevant. It's simply the way the world, simply the way life is today. It's simply the way our patients and our employees are. And I think sometimes, you know, when you really, you know, I, we really want to help someone and you just feel like, nah, then it's like, well, okay, then we'll do it on our own. We'll do it over here and event will win. And that won't be, that, that won't be very, it will be painful, that process. And so I think, you know, it, 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 do you ever feel that way? Because you work for an awesome practice. We should say that. People that run Vios, Strangy Beltzos, Greg Polis, that team are really forward thinking awesome. But elsewhere in the field, have you just had this like, this frustration? I'm dealing with more practices and, and like different strategic partners, but What's it been like for you? Oh, yeah. I think you've you hit the nail on the head. But what everyone needs to do, no matter you know where they are in the clinic and what their role and responsibility is, is you have to ask yourself if, if you're not interested in something like what you offer um, or you, you know, you've got a, a you know, a new EMR that's, you know, they're trying to sell it to you or there's something like Engaged MD. You have to step back and evaluate why your knee-jerk reaction is no. And is it coming from a place of ageism? Is it coming from a place of ignorance? Usually it's coming from a place of ignorance. And what I think is hard is that physicians in this field are so bright and they have done so much school and worked so hard to become who they are. And they're insanely knowledgeable. And many of them are very business savvy, but 
I think physicians and and professionals in general have a hard time stepping back and and saying, I don't know this, or this isn't my wheelhouse and, and being okay with that. And it's hard. It's hard for all of us to admit when we don't know something or we don't get it, but that's not an excuse for not adapting and changing. And so I think what you have to do is show that you have to show them with numbers and facts and present why this is important. And it always comes back to the patients because the patients want this. This is what they are telling us each other and we can't ignore it. So just because you don't understand it, or it seems like, you know, a cost that you don't want to add to your budget, you really need to give the time to explore and understand before you make that decision. And it's really hard to step outside of our preconceived notions. When we say, no, I'm not into it. That's not for me. That's not necessary. We don't need that. To come back then full circle and say, oh, this is a value add. You have to then say, I was wrong. And people don't want to do that too. So you've got people that want to don't acknowledge that they don't know something. And then they really don't want to say that they were wrong about something. So I think if you can start at the beginning and say, you know what, this is something I want to learn more about. Start from that place instead of the no and turning it to a yes. Start from maybe. There's no harm in maybe. And there's so many interesting new partners that our clinics can be working with that if you start from maybe, it's not always going to be a yes, but you don't have to come from the place of no, because if you don't know exactly what it is that they do or how they do it or why they're doing it or why you should pay for it, you need to do your research. You need to listen because while time is valuable and it takes time to do those things, there's some real value adds that had I closed my mind off to it because I didn't know who they were or what they were about, we wouldn't be as successful as we are. So that's my position is step outside of your ego and also just your history and your foundation of where you're coming from and know that there's some amazing stuff coming down the pipeline to help our patients have phenomenal experiences. And if you can come from that place of maybe, then you're going to find the things that suit you and will work well for your clinic. I wish people could see how emphatically I was nodding when you were talking about the physicians are the the leaders in the field, the established people. I never want that to be lost. I feel like sometimes whether I, I, I imagine people perceive me this way. I sometimes perceive myself this way as being like the whiz kid, smart ass sometimes because I really know what I'm on. And then I, what, what we're working on and the results we've gotten. And, and I face just, resistance that I don't understand. I never, how much I respect the intelligence and the hard work of the people in our field that have gotten us to where we are because they are extraordinarily bright and they took a lot of risk and they did it for. I think that's important. And I have seen a little bit of issue in that area that when you are not a physician and you even if you've been working with them for a long time, it's a different mindset. And we all play our part in making sure that the patients have an amazing experience. But the reason I love fertility, probably most of all, is I love working with, in my clinic, these brilliant female physicians who are funny and they are wicked smart and they're creative and interesting. And 
that's what I want to harness. I want to take all of, of their amazing ability, not only to get our patients pregnant, which they do a phenomenal job of, but to make our patients feel incredible. I want to kind of bottle that up and spread it throughout the rest of the clinic. And that's what the leaders in our field need to do. You need to look to your physicians and physicians have to be leaders in ways that they often aren't prepared for. It's not like they take tons of leadership classes in medical school. But when you move into this field, there's undoubtedly going to be a sense of leadership for leading your team because you've got a team that's administrative. You've got the clinical team, you've got the laboratory team, you've got marketing teams and you've got to marry them together. And you've, you are the face and you are the vision and you have to jump into that role. And, and if it's not something that you're comfortable with, learn it just like you learned how to do surgery, just like you learned all of these protocols, just like you learned reproductive endocrinology, take the time to learn because then your clinic will be even more incredible. Because when you've got these physicians who are also business savvy and they are leaders, their clinics just thrive. I guess I'll conclude with a notice to millennials, to young people, that it's very easy to take one tone when you're young, another tone when you're on the opposite side of the generational decisions. Meaning all of the millennials have now can be echoed very similar to the frustrations that the baby boomers had of the generation before them and so on and so on for all of history in person in our field. I'm not going to mention her by name because I don't want to embarrass her, but I, I just love her. She's, she's in her seventies and she works on the industry side. She used to be in practice and she's still working her tail off. And at a meeting, she grabs me and said, Griffin, I want to talk to you about blockchain. <laughs> And I, gosh darn it, I love you. I just love that, you know, I, I, it, I think of, I think of my grandfather, who was somebody who never got old, even through his 80s, he, he old until his body failed him. And, and when we're in positions of power, will be people coming to us with different ideas that we will ignore if we are not hyper vigilant and, in uh, remembering of this. And, and by the way, we're not in the group anymore. People coming in at, to the workforce at age 21, 22 are a different generation. I'm already starting to hear our cohort of earlier millennials who are in their mid-30s saying, oh, these kids or what do they know? And I issue that cautionary tale to the rest of our generation and as a means of combating that ageism and benefiting from wisdom from generations, both younger and older. And I will let you try to conclude by waxing something more poetic than that, but good luck. (laughs) No, I agree. I think what you have to think about is that you're, you're building a team and you're building a presence in the field, whether your clinic is one location, one doctor, or it's, 20 locations and 20 doctors, but you want to build a culture and it has to adapt to the changing generation. So you have to find a way to pull everyone in and keep them engaged and interested. And not every single task or event or, or project is going to to do that for everyone. But if you at least are conscientious about it and you are crafting a culture that respects and engages everyone from the different generations that are in your clinic, you will survive. And it's hard. It's hard work to do that because 
you have to take a task and find a way that you can utilize the 22 year old and the way you can utilize the 52 year old. And you want to find the ways to do that. And I think that there's a lot to be said for pairing people up when possible so that they can learn from each other. Because when you silo the young entry-level people away from the experienced veterans, you're doing yourself such a disservice because the veterans have so much to teach and they might not be teaching it in the way that the young guns are used to learning, but it doesn't mean they can't learn and they want to learn and they want to do well. And everyone comes to work wanting to do well at their job. They want to know the expectations that they have for themselves and what you have for them. And they want to meet them. And if you have people who don't want to meet them, then they're not the right fit for you. But what I have found is that no matter the age, no matter the generation, when you find good people, they want to do well for you and they want to take your vision and make it better. And so it is our responsibility to take that energy and that drive and find the best possible ways to apply it and know that it isn't always going to be familiar to ourselves and it isn't always going to be easy, but it is going to be so worthwhile. And I could talk to you forever about this. I could talk to you for another week about it. So you will be back on the show for future (laughs) episodes and I just thank you so much for coming on. I love you. I love your love the team that you work with. And thank you so much for coming on our show. Oh, thanks, Griffin. I'm so excited that you're doing this. I think it's really important and it's a different part of the space that isn't being addressed right now. So I can't wait to listen to the rest of your episodes. You've been listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast with Griffin Jones. If you have a strong opinion about today's episode, we want to hear it. Agree, disagree, or have another point to add, please email podcast at fertilitybridge.com and tell us if you recommend a guest or a topic for a future episode. If you're ready to skyrocket your fertility practices growth and double your IVF cycles, schedule your fertility marketing discovery call by clicking the link in the show notes. And if you just want to learn more tactics to market your fertility center, download our free ebook, The Ultimate Guide to Fertility Marketing on fertilitybridge.com, also available in the show notes. Thanks again for listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast, and we look forward to talking more fertility shop on future episodes. 